You're listening to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast. For more information, check out our website at www.shorelinecc.com. Amen. Good morning, good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to pull them out or take your phone out and go to your Bible app as we look again to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, this is part of our summer letter series where we're kind of taking some time to dig in and to walk through uh, just some powerful words that the Lord would have for us today. As you're turning there, 1 John 2, we're going to be, be reading this here in a minute, but this is a, 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 a chapter that focuses in on how do we know if we are followers of Christ? Have you ever asked yourself that question? How do you know if you're a Christian? Now, for you, you may be some pretty confident people, but when I was a kid growing up, I wasn't always that confident because I knew what I did. (laughs) And so there were so many times where I would grow up that I would often go to bed going, do I know Jesus? Am I okay? If Jesus comes back, am I going to go to be with him forever? Anybody there? Am I the only one that's dysfunctional here this morning? Is that (laughs) right? I had this massive insecurity that, that was coming up. I was the kid that in Sunday school, I was running to the altar as a five-year-old, give my life to Christ every week because during the week, you know, I played a lot of hockey, had a lot of cheap shots. There were, I didn't always treat my sister very well. I loved my mom and dad, but that got reflected in different ways throughout the week, right? Okay? So in our society, even today, as we talk about this, I think it's so important because we, we do have people that are so confused, and often we're so confused. How do we know that we're followers of Christ? And we feel very insecure about it, and we don't need to. The Lord has pointed the way. But then there are also people on the other side that are so confident, almost to the point of arrogance, where they're like, I'm good. God is love, and it doesn't matter what I do. I'm, I'm good with God. I'm following Christ. But we see all these warnings through Scripture that there is a way to know. And so we need to know the Lord has told us and he's shown us here specifically in this book, 1 John chapter 2. And so we're going to dive into this today. Are you ready? Are you ready? So 1 John chapter 2, it says, my little children, that's all of us because we're children of God. It says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, that's a big word, for our sins. We'll come back to that later. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 7. Behold, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the very beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness 
and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now let's drop down to verse 15. Verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen? You ready to receive from the Lord today? Just hold your hands up to the Lord as a sign of receiving. Lord, we are ready to receive from your word. Lord, let our heart be that fertile ground. That your truth, your word, your seeds, your power, your life can be planted in it. And God, let those roots grow deep into us as we hear from you. Now, Lord, speak through me today. Let it be your words. Let it be your thoughts because that's the only power there is. So, Lord, anoint this time as we give it to you. And everyone said together, amen, amen. 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 So today we're looking at how do I know if I'm a follower of Christ? And as we look at this passage, we see very clearly that followers of Christ are immediately marked by a life of obedience. Everyone say obedience. Obedience, Obedience, right? It's marked by obedience because what we obey, it reflects our ownership. Whatever you obey, it reflects who owns you. Sometimes we think that we're our own owners, but really there's something else going on. So our obedience, it reflects who owns us. And see, as it relates to God's ownership, it's all or nothing. God is not just the majority shareholder in your life. He doesn't just have 51% of the shares, and the other 49 you can kind of sell off to other people you know, based on the bigger returns you come in. Do you get what I'm saying? God owns all of it. When God doesn't own all, at any point, there can be this corporate takeover in your life and things coming in. That's why God is like, either I'm God of it all of your life or I'm God of nothing. Anything short of that is a deception. It is all. He doesn't share. And the problem that we have with obedience, John marks out here very clearly by sin. He says, I am writing to you so that you may not sin. Now, what is sin? Sin is very simply, it's the rejection of God. It's the rejection of God. It's saying, I'm good, I don't need you, God. And oftentimes in our lives and in our society, there are several areas of rejection that we often see. The first area that we often see of rejection is in the area of belief. There are those that say, I don't even believe in God. There is no God. It's, It's kind of the ultimate rejection. God, you don't exist, so there's no need for me to even obey you because you're not even there. For some... There's a rejection at the level of following, meaning that I believe that there's a God, but I kind of follow here and there, right? God has a few shares, my job has a few shares, this relationship has a few shares, and I've got a few shares just to kind of do whatever I want, whenever I want, and however I want. There's no life that has the evidence of following. So there's, again, it's that rejection of God. And for others, there's this deception as it relates to the rejection of God. They believe in God, and they think they are following, but they fail to believe. And we see this evidence often at times when it it says, in that day, many will say, God, didn't I do this? Didn't I do these healings? Didn't I do these miracles? And Jesus looks at the person and says, I don't even know you. Depart from me. This is so important and so elemental. 
because this is harmful. The reason why God hates sin is because it is so harmful. Why is it harmful? Because it leads to death. It leads to destruction. We know this from Romans 6 where it says the wages of sin is death. Death. It's also harmful because sin, it separates us from God. It actually places us in opposition to God, to the one who made us, the one who loves us. Sin puts us in a position of where we're opposing God. Isaiah 59, 2, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, sin, it separates us, doesn't it? It separates us from the Lord. And the challenge with it is that so often sin is rooted in our own pride. It's our own pride. It's what can I do? What do I think? Where am I at? Where the pride of our own lives come up. And we know that God opposes the the proud. How many have been guilty of pride? I'll lead the way. I have. Pride is one of the most destructive things because it isolates and it says, it's all about me. And it sets us up in opposition. Because, see, we need to remember that God is the creator of heavens and earth. God created you. You are all masterpieces today. All, everyone. Look around. You're in an art gallery today. These are all masterpieces in front of you, okay? And God protects what he creates because he's the creator. Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, God is an avenger of truth. He is truth. He will always protect it. And sometimes we get kind of confused by this wrath of God. We hear things like, well, God is love. How can God be angry? Love's not angry, is it? Have you ever come, come, come across a mama bear protecting her bear cubs? One of the worst things you can see on a trail for a hiker, of which I love doing, and this happened several times. When I come on, on, on a trail, the first time I saw some bear cubs, I went, oh, man, aren't they cute? Aren't they beautiful? And then someone said, no, 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 no. <laughs> that is death waiting at your door. Why? Because mama bear is not very far away. And even in the area of Canada where I live, we had black bears, and black bears were typically skittish. They didn't want to be around you unless their cubs went to you, and then that's when the wrath of the black bear would rise because they're a protector. God is a protector, and sometimes we confuse this. But J.I. Packer says this very eloquently when he says, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, never self-indulgent, never irritable, never morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. See, God's wrath is not like ours. We get angry because somebody took our candy or someone took the last beanie weenie in the pot, right? But with God, he's doing it to protect us because he knows it will destroy us. He will destroy us. So as we look at the challenge of sin, what is our answer? Jesus. What's the answer to everything? Jesus. It is. And it often sounds like an oversimplification, but the answer is always Jesus. But the reason why we oversimplify it is because we fail to see that the answer is Jesus, but then it's following him. 
And that's where it can get tough. That's where it can take time to walk out. Because the answer isn't just saying Jesus. The answer is allowing Jesus to be inside of you, living inside of you, transforming you, giving you strength to walk the path that you've got to walk, whether it's for yourself or walking with somebody else. But the answer is Jesus. He's the only one who can lead you out. He's the only one who can give direction to your life. And here in this passage, it says that the answer is Jesus by saying that Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our advocate. He presents our cause and the cure to God. And when we look at this word advocate and we look at this Greek word parakletos, it's actually the same word that is used for the, often for the Holy Spirit. See, it's someone who was called to our side for help. Someone who is in a position to help. They're stronger. They're wiser. They care about you and they see what will happen if they do not intercede. Aren't you thankful for people like that in your life? They see that you have a need and they come in to comfort you, to be with you, to help you, to give something to you that you don't have. I love those people. We all need that. But even here as it looks at the advocate, it's someone who is actually sacrificing themselves. See, when you advocate for someone, you are even putting your own life at risk. When you advocate for somebody, you're saying, you know what, you are so valuable for me, I'm going to step in, I'm going to help out, I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself right now. We often call that parenting, where we step in and we help out, because that's what family does. Because see, Jesus knew that without this, we would have severe judgment. We needed somebody. He's also described in this chapter as our propitiation for sin. Everyone say propitiation. Propitiation. Not not bad. It's not an everyday word. Verse 2, it says, He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what does this mean? Propitiation of sin, it means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it into favor. So it's a sacrifice that it takes the wrath that was due to me, due to Dwayne, and it bears it, and now it turns it into a favor. Isn't that a cool thing? He's our propitiation. But as we look at this, it's not just enough just to say Jesus and to walk away. But we see something very important in this chapter that deals with the application. Because see, It's no good unless we apply it. You have to use it. And here John uses three words that we often hear. Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. See, abiding in Christ, it's walking in the light. Walking in the light is what John was referring to when he says, I am telling you these things. He says in verses 5 and 6, he says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It's abiding in Christ. These are the same words that Jesus used. Jesus said this back in John 15, where he said, Abide in me, and I in you. Talking about the vine. He says, As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus speaking. You are the branches, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. 
For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Did you hear that? As Jesus abides in you, his life in you, your life controlled by him, he said, ask whatever you wish and it will be done because you're on my plan, you're on my will, you're on my way. This is powerful. But unfortunately, we often treat Jesus like he is just our ticket, like he's just our get-out-of-jail-free card, like a possession that we own and we put in our pocket, and when we need it, we pull it out. But this is not what Jesus is talking about. See, Jesus, he owns us. And you may be deceived today, thinking, well, nobody owns me but me. That never works out. There's always ownership. Jesus is the only one who has your best interest at heart. 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. We're owned by Jesus. You want to see fulfillment in life? You want to see great joy? You want to see a life to the full in John 10.10? It means that we give everything to God, allow his purpose to be alive in us. Our bodies are temples. He's saying treat it like that. But to do this, it requires the application That's why those spiritual disciplines are so important of getting up in the morning. And the first thing, God, show me from your word what you want. If it's one verse, if it's a chapter, whatever it is, let this word soak in me. I want your word in me today. Talking to the Lord, giving him thanks for the day. Prayer, listening, talking to God. Encouraging others. Being involved in those relationships. If we apply the same level of discipline to our spiritual life as we did to our teeth. It only takes one cavity to realize, I better brush my teeth every day. How many of you learned that lesson long ago? Right? I can skip a few days until you get to junior high and you start caring about your breath. But once you get a cavity, then you're like, man, I better take attention here. It's the same thing. Just like you would not go a day without brushing your teeth at least once or twice or three times. Or combing your hair if you have any. Right? Same thing with our spiritual disciplines. You've got to be involved in them. You've got to be dedicated to them. It's the application. And as John continues in this, he talks about how important obedience is, and he even gives us the two key areas that obedience is revealed in. Because it's not enough just to say, well, yeah, I obey, but there's actually a way to know in this. And he gives us two key areas, and these areas are two areas. One is how I treat others, And how I treat the world. So if you want to know that if you are an obedient follower of Christ, two key areas that you'll see that in is how you treat others as well as how you treat the world. So let's look at how I treat others first. John says here in verse 9, he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know even where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now John even says there that this is not a new commandment. Love your neighbors yourself. Is this new? No, this is a part of who we are, right? They will know us by the way that we love each other. We're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
And even God, way back in the book of Genesis, when he was confronting Cain, what did he say to Cain? He said, Cain, where is your brother? Cain, where is your brother? And what did Cain respond? Am I my brother's keeper? I think it was the first time that duh was used, okay? It was like, yes, you are. You are responsible for him. In 1 John 4 here, in verse 20, it says, If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. That's from the message version. It gets right to it. It's blunt. You have to love both. And John even says in here, he says that hating your brother is even compared to blindness. Do you hate your brother? You've got a sight problem because you can't even see. You're missing something. You don't see it. You don't get it. And as a result, you don't even know where you're going. Try covering your eyes and see how well this graduation weekend goes for you. See, darkness has overcome and controlled us when we walk in this way. And this is sad because our number one longing as a culture is friendship and community. We hear this a lot from sociologists. Sociologists, they've said consistently that the number one longing of Seattle, of Shoreline, of America, of our world is community, that deep friendship, but we're blind to it. The thing that we want, we've covered our eyes and we've ignored it and we've walked away from it. And we go, why don't I have community? Why don't I have, I have friendship? We need this. We need this. See, our sin, our rejection of God, I hope today that you're seeing very clearly that it affects others. It doesn't just affect ourselves. See, we like to believe that our choices only affect us. But here John comes out and just says, it's a lie. It's a lie. And there's two lies that I want to kind of highlight today. Lie number one, maybe you've heard this before. If I don't see the consequences immediately, then there are none. Have you ever done something and then nothing happened so you thought you got away with it? And then you didn't? (laughs) It showed up? See, most consequences for a lot of things are often delayed. And I think sometimes the older that you get, you find it, right? When you're really young, your mom or your dad or your auntie or your friend or someone's there so that when something goes wrong because you're watching little kids a a lot. When you have little kids, you're watching them because you know what they can do, okay? So you're right there on them so that when they go to touch a hot stove, you go, no, 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 don't do that. Or they try to put something in their mouth, no, 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 that'll hurt you. Or they pull on your hair, you go, that's all I got, let go, Okay? We watch them a lot, but as that goes in time, sometimes the consequences aren't there, and it gives us this, this kind of false sense of euphoria of, I'm, I'm good. There is no bill until the bill shows up, and the bill always shows up. We're in a culture that loves get it now and pay later, right? Just give me some more credit, baby. I'm ready to go. But the bill always shows up. And we know that the longer you wait to pay the bill, does the bill get smaller or bigger? It gets bigger. It's something called interest. It gets worse. It gets heavier. The burden becomes stronger. And see, the longer that we wait, just like it 
in interest in sin, it festers and it grows. When sin that is left unattended, sin that is left unconfessed, or sin, like what the Bible says, if you're at the altar, if you're praying, and an offense to your brother or sister comes up, get up and go make it right. Why is that? Because the quicker that you go, the better it will be. The easier that the healing will be. Because sin, it festers and grows. Because see, the longer that it sits in you, the deeper that that hook gets set. The deeper that that hook gets set. We've seen this to where even there was a time when they would just take raw sewage and just pump it out in the harbor. And some places still do that. And they feel, oh, it's fine. It's out at sea. It'll wash away. Or they'll take trash and they'll bring it to sea and they'll just dump it and go, well, it's okay. And then go away. I don't see it. So it's all good. But where does trash end up going? Back on the beach. Where does sewage end up going? Back on the beach. It gets into the food we eat. It destroys our world. But in the beginning, they had the sense of, oh, it's fine. It's out there. The ocean will take care of it. But it always washes back up on our beach. It always comes back to haunt us. And it's often worse. That trash that would have been easy to take care of is now very difficult because it's affected the ecosystem. It's the same thing with sin. Sometimes consequences can seem delayed due to the grace that's in our life. What does grace provide for us? It provides an opportunity for escape. It's the love of Christ. And see, sometimes we think that we're actually getting away with it when God is looking down and saying, turn, turn. That's destroying you. Walk away from that. But we blind our eyes and we cover our ears. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will always provide a way of escape. Amen? That when you're tempted, God's saying, there's a way to escape. That's going to kill you, but jump out now. Come with me. Let me show you the way out. Confess your sin. Let's deal with it. Let's get on to the life that I have for you. This is the way of our Father. He gives us a chance. Is one cigarette going to kill you? Not normally. But if we let that hook set in, we know the dangers of smoking, don't we? How destructive it is. How the nicotine gets hooked in our system to where now we build up this addiction to where we can't let go of it. And not only that, even as it relates to cigarette smoking, we know that secondhand smoke can be just as harmful you know, I grew up, I used to roll cigarettes for, for my sister. I got two cookies, man. It was a little thing going on. But we now know that cigarettes are destructive. It's the same way with sin. In the beginning, it seems good, it seems cool, it seems hip, it seems groovy to a generation before me, okay? But we know the destructive nature of it. See, one mistake does not need to define you unless it begins to own you. That's what God's doing. He's saying that sin, that doesn't need to define you. That error, that mistake, it doesn't need to define you, but let it go and choose God before the hook gets set. See, the bait on a hook, every fisherman knows this, the bait on a hook, it tastes good. When the fish first bites it, and there's a form of fishing where you just put it out and the hook is there, and the fish comes along and it takes it and swallows it, and the fisherman doesn't pull yet. Just let's let the fish take off and think, oh, that, 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 that was a good snack, that was a good meal. 
And then the fisherman sets the hook and begins to reel in. Does that fisherman have good intentions for that fish? Not to the fish. It's the same way with our sin. Sometimes we eat it and we swallow it and we go, that's good. Until we feel the pain of the hook start going through our jaw. And God's saying, no, there's a way of escape. And the truth is that with God, even when the hook is set, can God break that hook? Yes. Even when the hook is set, there have been hooks in my life that have been set that I, I thought was good for a while, and then I felt the pierce of the hook going through. And even then, God came in and said, I can deliver you. There's often more pain involved because now i got a hook in my jaw I'm trying to pull out. So whether this morning, if you have a hook in your jaw, God can solve it. If there's something trying to get set in you, deal with it now so that you don't have to feel that. This is the grace. Don't believe the lie that just because you don't feel the consequence that there aren't any. So that's lie number one. Lie number two, live and let live. In other words, it doesn't matter what I do. Have you heard that lie before? Just live and let live, baby. It doesn't matter what I do. But we know everything that we do, it affects others. We see this in pollution, right? We think, I'm going to throw this piece of paper on the ground. No big deal. Daniel will pick that up for me. He's walking behind me, and he's an eco guy, so he'll, he'll take care of all the trash. But we need to realize everything that we do, when I throw that piece of paper, now it encourages someone else to throw that piece of paper. Well, Pastor Dwayne is throwing paper on the ground. We can all throw paper on the ground. No big deal. And who's left with the burden? Someone's got to pick it up. Daniel's like, I'm getting sick and tired of picking up Dwayne's trash. I don't litter, by the way, okay? No hate mail. Pick up your trash. Everything that we do has an effect. Just like in commerce, our spending habits affect what is made available and what is pulled back based on how we buy things. The responsibility that we use. And here, claiming to be walking in the light, but walking in darkness, the Word of God even tells us that it suppresses the truth when we do that. There is no live and let live. Everything that we do either glorifies the Lord or suppresses the truth. Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, by, the un- by them who suppress the truth through their unrighteousness. See, there is no autonomy. We don't live for ourselves. How we live, it reflects our ownership. See, our actions, they affect others. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Jesus often spoke about the stumbling block, about how our actions affected other people. In Matthew 18, he says, But whoever caused one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be thrown into the depth of the sea. Do you think being a stumbling block for others is important to Jesus? It's very important. Everything that we do affects those around us. 1 Corinthians 8, but you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. Because remember, we're in fellowship here. We're in community with each other. It is not just about me, but how am I affecting those around me? 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God brought bought you with a high price so you must honor God with your body. This this, this body is a temple. The Holy Spirit lives in me. 
It needs to be acting and responding in accordance to how God would want me to live. So what that means, it means that anytime some kind of dirt comes in or something's coming in, I need to be going to the Lord and say, Father, forgive me. Let's get that out of here. This is your temple. This is your house. This is your place. I want to glorify you, and I don't want to lead anybody else to stumble around me. It's not about being perfection. Dirt's going to be blown in. Things are going to be dumped in you. But our responsibility as followers of Christ is to raise the flag and go, we need to clean up on aisle four over here, okay? Dwayne just spilled a bunch of junk. Let's get it out of here. And Dwayne needs to say, hey, I'm sorry for spilling that. Not going to happen again. Let's get rid of it. Holy Spirit, help me. Body of Christ, help me. Help each other in this. This is how we walk. Because we have a responsibility to each other. So our obedience is reflected in the way that we treat each other. And then my last point this morning, obedience is revealed in how I treat the world. The world. After all, we are the world. We are as children. <laughs> We're the ones who can make a brighter day. All right? So here we go. Verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean when God says, do not love the world? Is God saying reject the world? No. See, it is not a rejection of the world, because who made the world? God. And you remember one of the most famous scriptures that our world knows in John 3.16? It says, for God so loved the, the world. God made the world. He loves the world. And he, we also know back in the book of Genesis and in Numbers that God made us stewards of the world. He made the world, and then he placed us in charge to take care of it. And even in Numbers 35.33, it says this, and I quote, You shall not pollute the land in which you live. Everyone said... Amen, okay? God cares about the world. But see, John, he's addressing the object of our love. He's saying, do you love the world more than God? Is it the world or God? Are you worshiping the created or are you worshiping the creator? Because see, loving the world first, it results in these things that John has pointed out. Three things. He pointed out the lust of the flesh, meaning that whatever pleases the flesh, that's what you're going for. That's the love of the world. The other area is the lust of the eyes. Whatever's pleasing through the eye. So whatever your eye kind of focuses on and creates that lust and you start going for it, that's loving the world. And then he says the pride of life. In other words, anything that places itself above God by saying prove yourself. It's that pride of life but me by always trying to prove yourself. See, John, he's addressing the object of our love. Is it this world or is it God? And coincidentally, these were the same three temptations that Satan brought to Jesus, aren't they? What did Jesus do when he was tempting Satan? The first thing he did, he brought the lust of the flesh. He said, Jesus, you're hungry. 40 days fasting. Turn these rocks into bread. How many would love to have that power? Okay, Turn these stones into bread. That's the lust of the flesh. When that didn't work, then Satan went to the lust of the eyes. 
It says the devil took him up to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms in the world and their glory. And he said, all these things that you see, I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Aren't, isn't this beautiful, Jesus? I'll give it to you if you worship me. It's the lust of the eyes. And then the third temptation that Satan brought to Jesus was the pride of life. In Matthew 4, 6, when Satan said to Jesus, he said, if you are the son of God, prove it. Throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. Step to the plate. Prove that you are the son of God. It's the three temptations that hit all of us. And then Jesus, he shows us the answer. Remember, what was Jesus' response? What did he say? He said, be gone, Satan. Be gone, Satan. He didn't try to joke around with Satan and go, yeah, you know, I could, but maybe that'll be happening. You know, I'm kind of hungry, but I need to back away. Jesus spoke directly and said, be gone, Satan. Be gone. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. When we are tempted, when temptations come into our life, we can't afford to pick them up or to play with them or justify them. We need to say, be gone. Get out of here. I'm done with you. Be gone. I'm going to worship the Lord only. This is my temple. I'm not going to be pulled in by the lust of the flesh, the lust of my eyes, or even my own pride. I'm going to say, be gone, Satan. And so many times we get caught up because just like that fish with the bait, we go, that bait tastes good. And then we try to swallow it, and then Satan sets the hook and tries to reel us in. But we need to see it and recognize it and say, be gone, Satan. I'm only worshiping God. I'm only worshiping God. My family's only going to worship God. My church is going to worship God. My city is going to worship God. The nation, the world's going to worship God. The one who made us, the one who loves us, the one who's reconciling us. This is not messing around. Because, see, loving God, it is our only hope. Loving God is our only hope. Do you believe that this morning? Our only hope is in our love for God, our love for God. See, everything comes back to this. Everything comes back to the greatest commandment in Matthew 22, that we're to love the Lord our God with everything, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love our neighbor. The horizontal and the vertical are always connected. And you will always see it. If you love God, you're going to love the person next to you, no matter what. No matter if they smell different than you, no matter if they look different than you, no matter if they have different ideas, different thoughts than you or disagree with you, you will love them. Because sometimes the problem is you. Have you sometimes I've walked in the room and went, hey, what's that smell? And went, oh, it's me. It's me with the smell. You don't walk in with an accusing finger. You walk in going, God, I'm here to call to love everybody. I'm, here to, I'm called to love everybody. Because see, love that is void of God is a counterfeit. It is a shadow of the real thing, and it confuses people. It confuses us. God's love is the only thing that will last. We know that everything else will pass away. We know that everything else will fall short. And as the worship team comes back this morning, as we head into response time, we know that without loving God first above everything else, nothing else is going to work out in our life. Nothing. It may seem good for a while, but nothing else will work. Nothing else will last. So how do we know that we're a follower of Christ today? It's not just with our words. Words fall short. 
we're in an environment where words are plenty. And there's lots of opportunity. You can self-publish your own book and put millions of words in it if you wanted to. But Jesus is saying this morning, does your life have the evidence? Does your life have the evidence through your obedience? Is it reflected in how you love others? Is it reflected in loving God? How you treat the world that you live in? Treating your body as a temple owned by God. See, when you know that God is the owner of you, and you see some dirt accumulating, you start getting it out. And this morning, you may find yourself in this place going, you know what? I've got a spill on all five over here, I need, but I, I need some help. It's more than I can deal with. And Jesus is the answer, but he's called us to walk together in that. So I'd like to invite my prayer team friends somewhere over here. And I think I have some friends over here too, as well as in the balcony. Maybe this morning as the worship team sings, these are people you can just go to and say, you know what, yeah, some dirt's blown in my life. Will you help me bring this to Jesus? The Bible says, are you anxious for anything? You should pray. Are you feeling down and out? You should pray. And that means going to friends who love you. As we respond today as well, we also have symbols of the love of Christ today. That maybe you're like me, that as soon as the team starts singing, I'm going to be going to this table, taking the bread, representing Jesus' body broken for me, taking the cup, his blood, cleansing me from sin. Maybe there's things in your life you need healing. Bring it to the Lord today, whatever it is. Could we all stand today? As we just take a few moments just to respond to the love of Christ. Maybe it's even going to the prayer wall, just writing something down. Fill that thing up. Or maybe it's just turning to the person you came with and said, hey, can we talk about something? <laughs> so Father, help us now to respond to your love. Your love is active. Your love is more than sufficient. So help us now as a community to respond to the love of Christ, walking in obedience. In your name. Amen. Let's take some moments here to respond to the Lord.